The following is a presentation of the Premier Dance Network. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Bar. I'm your host, Margaret Mullen. I'm thrilled to share with you a very special and uniquely musical episode with you today. It is my extreme honor to welcome internationally celebrated conductor Ming Luke to the show. Ambitious and versatile, Ming Luke is a highly lauded, greatly coveted conductor invited to present symphonic, choral, and classical ballet music all over the world. Luke has an incredibly unique gift to offer the ballet world, his own training as a dancer. He is the principal guest conductor for the San Francisco Ballet, having led over 100 productions at the historic War Memorial Opera House. He is about to embark on his ninth exciting tour with the company to the Kennedy Center in late October. The company will present two programs of new works selected from their groundbreaking Unbound Festival. This festival will include works by Trey McIntyre, Christopher Wielden, David Dawson, Edouard Liang, Kathy Marston, and Justin Peck. Luke has conducted for top orchestras and ballet companies worldwide, including the Bolshoi Orchestra, the New York City Ballet Orchestra, Birmingham Royal, Kennedy Center Opera Orchestra, Boston Ballet, and numerous others. He has worked with ensembles across the US, UK, Russia, France, Czech Republic, Slavic Republic, Hungary, and Austria. With a commanding presence both on and off the stage, Ming Luke acts as music director for a variety of organizations. He has the distinction of being only the third music director selected to the Berkeley Community Chorus and Orchestra in the past 50 years. Recognized nationally for his innovative education programs, Luke has written, arranged, and performed nearly 200 education concerts with the Berkeley Symphony, for whom he is associate director. A highly respected figure in the industry, Luke has served on grant panels for the National Endowment of the Arts, as well as the Grants and Cultural Committee of the Sacramento Metropolitan Arts Commission. An exciting pops conductor, Luke has created and conducted a variety of pops concerts in many venues, from baseball stadiums to picnics in the park with over 4,000 people in attendance, traditional concert halls, and recording for Major League Baseball. Luke seeks stimulating opportunities to challenge himself and his audience to experience music in new ways. He also has a deep passion for creating a true partnership between music and dance in live performance. He has been praised by the ballet community for the level of care and consideration he offers dancers. The great Natalia Makarova once stated, Ming has a mixture of pure musicality and a sensitivity to needs of the dancers, which are rare qualities. It is my great pleasure to welcome him to the show today. Hello, Ming, and thank you so much for joining me. Um, well, there's you have an incredible bio, uh, so much to talk about, so I feel like maybe we should just start at the beginning. Um, I'm curious to hear about your early life as far as music went. Uh, I saw that you started the piano at three and the violin at eight. Is that right? Um, yeah. were you... My parents started piano at the same time, and they still uh, they still take from the same piano teacher. But piano music is something that's always been part of the household for a long oh, okay. time. So, so they they yeah. are very musically inclined themselves. 
Yeah, they, they like music a lot. They, they give their annual recital every single year, and oh. I try to make it out to see them when I can. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> um, were you a child that was hooked right away with music, or did you take some coaxing? It took a while. You know, honestly, it was because of social, it was because of my friends that I really connected to music. Mm. Um, you know, I took piano as just something that you did, just like school. You know, at three years old, there wasn't necessarily a choice into it. But, you know, the thing is that my parents saw that I was hooked because we went to a wedding. Um, and, you know, there was a string quartet that was playing at the reception. And apparently for 90 minutes at the reception, I just sat down in front of them and listened to them for the entire 90 minutes, which for a three-year-old is a really long time. Yeah, to, to sit to do anything, that's a very long time. And so I think it prompted the music lessons from that. But um, it was only until I saw some of my other friends that were doing incredible things with music, you know, playing pieces that were, to me at the time, incredibly difficult, and realizing that uh, um, there was so much more, not only in playing for myself and the music that I can make for myself, but also playing with other people and mm. the collaboration that it could occur. And I think that's what really um, uh, made music become an essential part and of my, my life at that time and really hooked me in. Oh, that's, that's really wonderful. I, I feel like that's uh, sometimes rare for young people to find is people that share a passion that way um, at a young age. So that's really wonderful that you had yeah. people to kind of spur you on in that sense. It's funny because sometimes, you know, occasionally I'll, I'll work with youth orchestras and you see the same thing. When you find that they're instrumentalists, um, their entire background, they've been maybe one of a few people that is, have been incredibly engaged by music and they absolutely love it. But when they're engaged with a whole orchestra of, of other musicians that are of a similar um, attitude towards music, you can see it really uh, engages them more. So mm. it's, it's exciting to see that. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's very empowering for young people. It's like, oh, it's not just me. <laughs> We're all in this together. Um, and what makes you so unique to our world, the dance world, is the fact that you have dance training. How did that begin for you? Well, it started off because there's a local ballet school that, um, you know, as, as can be common, um, that didn't have very many boys or men dancing as part of the company. And I was very much into music theater at the time, um, you know, on the stage singing and whatnot. And they made a trade with me. They said, basically, you know, if you if we provide you with free lessons, if we provide you with, you know, classes and access to our class for free, can you please join us so we can um, give our girls an opportunity to have partnering experience and uh, performing experience, not just as an ensemble, but also with, uh, you know, um, for positives, et cetera. <laughs> and so a friend and I uh, um, uh, joined this very small school for that purpose and realized that this was something that was very much, um, even though I hadn't taken formal dance lessons before, um, something that I very much connected to. And it's actually the main reason why I got into conducting. You know, it's that visceral connection between movement and music. Mm -hmm. And when I conduct, um, you know, very much like when I dance, you know, you could feel the music in your body and your skin. And because so much of conducting is about portraying the music and, you know, gathering and collaborating with the musicians in front of me, you know, we don't obviously make any sound whatsoever. You know, it's an orchestra that does in front of us. Um, it's very, um, it's a very physical sensation for me. And as a result, you know, this, this collaboration to try to get dancers and musicians more on the same page, is something that's very uh, um, important to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask about both of those things because I, not being a musician myself, I'm not really sure how one makes a jump to becoming a, a conductor. And it's really interesting to hear that for you, that was a dance inspired decision. Um, yeah. 
though, because it was the combination of those two. Because as I mentioned, I started music quite early, and then dance followed after that. But conducting sort of was a natural outcome of that. Um, also, you know, for for me, um, in the past, you know, Toscanini or, or sometimes the quote maestros of uh, the olden um, uh, generations were more of a dictator on top of the podium. Mm -hmm. And for me, music is more about collaboration and connection. And so as a conductor, um, uh, there was a time where I realized that the conductor was sort of the conduit for the energy in the room, for the performers, but also for the audience too. And the, con and the connection that we have um, to the audience oftentimes is through the conductor to try to uh, coalesce and concentrate the, the musical energies. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, especially because in ballet, it's very hard because, you know, you have the orchestra in the pit, um, you know, dancers can see some of them maybe, but, you know, you're really uh, focusing on other things. And likewise, musicians can't see the stage. You know, we oftentimes say it's like accompanying a concerto, an instrumental soloist, except you can't hear that soloist. Um, they can't see what's going on, but they know that their role is to be part of this uh, art artistic form. You know, it's just about connecting those two um, sides of the stage, I guess, together. Mm. And to me, that's very invigorating. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, that's beautiful. What you just said, that's very inspiring. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dancer that tries to always be very musical. Musicality means a lot to me and how... Uh, live music feels means a lot. So it's nice to hear about the perspective of someone that is right in the middle of that experience. It's really special. That's a special experience to have. <laughs> yeah, and it's very, very physically uh, um, symbolic too, because, you know, oftentimes we have to be a little bit higher than the musicians, not because we're supposed to be you know, more important or something like that, but it's more that so we are in between the stage and the musicians, like literally. You know, we're in that middle ground, and uh, trying to connect the two is um, is uh, very. Um, you know, with an orchestra, if you're just doing symphonic concerts, they're on the stage; they can all see and hear each other. Their focus is with it, you know, creating this ensemble. But on the stage, and so when you add distance, both um, dancers on the stage while the musicians are below the stage, um, there's a lot of logistics and uh, difficulty in the performance. And so it becomes, for me, a little bit more spontaneous art form, because just like, you know, with most companies, you're going to have different casts for every single day. And because they're different casts, they might all dance in different ways or um, by my knees slightly different tempi, etc. You know, um, it becomes a little bit more spontaneous and organic art form, whereas oftentimes I feel, which is, you know, not saying most a lot of orchestras do this, but sometimes there's a tendency um, to try to set things with orchestras and just perform that um, if you're doing it five times in a row. And I think that, uh, um, you know, being in a situation which requires flexibility um, is very uh, um, engaging. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty remarkable We uh, how different, like you said, casts can be. I, I recently experienced this during uh, Justin Peck's Year of the Rabbit. We discovered that our first cast and second cast liked a section completely differently. When we were when we were talking about um, my partner and I were opening night, and when we were talking with the conductor about, oh yeah, no, this is this is great. This part could be a lot faster. I I saw the other the, my friend who was the second cast kind of make this face, and I went up and I was like, are are you okay? And she's like, you like it that fast? It's like she's like, oh my god, I would never want to do it that fast. It's like, oh sorry. <laughs> so. 
you know, because dancing is, you know, a physical representation of who you are, um, it's very, very different. It's very uh, personal. Mm -hmm. And singers, it's the same thing. Their body, you know, their the way they produce voice is very much the same way. And so they're, they're going to approach things very differently. But, you know, whether somebody is very tall mm -hmm. or uh, very quick, you know, um, all those things will change and will ch try to change and adjust uh, to make sure that everybody's as comfortable as possible. <laughs> That's, that's very kind of you. It's <laughs> very appreciated as such answers, I know. Um, yeah, I, so I'm curious, how long did you continue your ballet training? Uh, it's something that I started off in, I think, middle school, which is, uh, um, uh, for, well, for guys are all over the place, obviously, right? <laughs> and I continued through, through to grad school. Um, and then once in grad school, uh, I had to decide between piano, conducting, a lot of different things, and conducting was the one that ended up uh, winning out overall. Um, but I, I missed those days because uh, not only just for the fear, uh, uh, pure um, strength and flexibility, and, you know, everything that comes along with it, I can barely touch my toes now. Uh, but, <laughs> it always goes away very quickly. <laughs> um, but, um, I, I miss the sort of... Uh, um, full body engagement of that because for connecting oftentimes the the rules are you know it's much more of an upper body um we're not supposed to be dancing around on the podium too much because if you change the musician's sightline focus oh. you know where they're looking too much it can be very uh, distracting for them oh interesting um, so yeah so trying to consolidate um into a certain area especially if you turn towards one section of the orchestra and the other section of the orchestra gets your back mm -hmm. that's a complete uh, no no because obviously then they have no clue what's going on you know yeah wow that makes sense um at first i thought you were going to say dancing around because you would fall off the podium because because it's so small <laughs> but that is uh yeah that makes a lot more sense it's very unique um and in your training i i'm not exactly sure how to uh pronounce this but i saw that you had done some training in something that was a body-based education system for understanding yeah. musical composition yeah there's there's dalcros which is a music um education method but it uses the body and improvisation, the, the two major tenets. You know, Kodai is a very famous music education system. Suzuki training for violin and piano and other instruments is very famous. And for the Dalcro system, they try to get things in your body rhythmically. And so they might start off as, as simply as, you know, can you have a steady, can you walk a steady beat, but clap um, subdivisions of that beat? And then can you do, uh, you know, two beats against three beats? Can you juggle a ball while you're bouncing, you know? And something to try to get your body physically engaged. Hmm. And it's a very different experience because oftentimes uh, for musicians, again, like with the Kodai method, you're working with your hands and just to do some symbols and singing. Um, with Suzuki, it's much more about using your ears and hearing things before you can do them and getting into your brain and memorizing them hmm. um, and repetition. Um, but Dalcro's was very interesting because of that idea of improvisation um, you know, there's these special instruments that only use notes that will all sound good together. So no matter what you hit, it sounds great. Um, and kids absolutely love them because they can be three years old and then performing a huge piece and <laughs> everything's going to sound great. But also because of the fact that you have to use your body. Um, and the further you get, the more coordinated you have to be. And the same thing that you have to know inside and out, you know, like the isolation between various parts of your body and um, the independence that comes with that. You know, it's a very interesting uh, um, uh, uh, music way to teach music. Hmm.
Yeah, that, that sounds, I, I'm sure that you probably had a bit of a leg up too with your dance training that teaches a lot of coordination. So <laughs> I'm sure. Right. It feels very, uh, it feels very different sometimes. Because, okay. uh, um, you're counting seven beats against five beats. And oh, you're trying interesting. To, you know, it feels a little bit like tapping. <laughs> over here. Oh, it sounds very challenging. Um, so I'm wondering, you went through this training, you've, you have this diverse background, you decided you wanted to focus on conducting. Uh, how did you end up making your way ac into actually conducting for ballet companies? You know, ballet is something that's very difficult to get into as a conductor because there are so few companies that will use full orchestra. That's um, a shame. <laughs> and so, you know, in the U.S., Oftentimes, you get pigeonholed in the certain areas. You know, you might be an opera conductor, a ballet conductor, a symphonic conductor. But, um, you know, most training starts off symphonically first. And, um, you know, for me, this sort of pigeonholing into certain areas doesn't make sense because, you know, Tchaikovsky didn't write only for the symphony. That sounds ludicrous just even to say that. And to say, you know, he wrote his fourth symphony at the same time he was writing this, um, his opera Eugene Onegin um, and you know just to focus only on the symphonic works without understanding how you know his operatic works and his symphonic works let alone all of his ballets um, are connected it doesn't make sense and so mm -hmm. for me I like um, I, I like a diverse uh, um, background in music because you know I have a chorus um, I obviously work with ballet work with opera um, I do symphonic work I do pops work I do education and I find they all inform each other um, and ballet was oddly, even though it was one of the first things I really loved, was one of the last ones I could get into mm. because there are a lot more opera companies than there are ballet companies with orchestra. There are a lot, there are tons and tons of symphonies. There are many, many uh, community orchestras, youth orchestras. You know, I directed a youth orchestra. I worked with uh, um, all state orchestras. But to get to the level where you're working with, if a company has an orchestra, it's usually a high level large regional company, um, if not just internationally, um, you know, uh, um, renowned uh, organizations. And so to get uh, to be able to get to a point to be able to uh, you know, contact these orchestras and companies and try to get opportunities um, was a little bit further down the line. Mm. Um, you know, in San Francisco um, was the first was one of the Sacramento and San Francisco were my first uh, ballet conducting experiences. And my first Nutcracker was actually the San Francisco Ballet, which is really cool because obviously uh, San Francisco was the first one that really brought Nutcracker as a tradition to, uh, um, to the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, so um, it was very uh, thrilling, but it's one of those things where I have this mission now that I want to get more people involved in ballet as musicians because uh, there's not as many opportunities. And, you know, for instance, there's not... I don't think I've ever seen a ballet conducting workshop before for mm. young conductors. They do, there's operatic conducting workshops, which are sort of um, less common, but there are many symphonic conducting workshops. Mm -hmm. But for ballet conducting, you very rarely see that. And since it's a very, um, uh, it's an art form that I love, and um, I know a lot of people um, are, are uh, absolutely love, it's something that I, I want to make sure that others have an opportunity to get experience. That's really great. Yeah, that was actually going to be one of my questions is the fact that live music as historically in ballet has such a major place in our history. Um, it's tremendously important from the beginning of the first major ballet performances. Yet, um, I saw you've been referred to as the Rosetta Stone for both sides, <laughs> human Rosetta Stone for music, <laughs> which I loved. But 
Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting just uh, why there are so few resources for creating that link between dancers yeah. and musicians and, you know, um, yeah, I, I saw... It's more about resources, you know, like mm -hmm. the more elements there are in an art form, the more complicated and more expensive it can be. And to have a full roster of a, a, a ballet company, plus a full orchestra, um, plus sets, costumes and everything, um, you know, operatic world is the same thing. It can be very difficult to bring new productions to the stage because it's such a financial gamble. And uh, I think it's very, but with opera, there are many conductors. I mean, there's oftentimes conductors backstage. There are choral conductors that are preparing the chorus. There are pianists that uh, double as conductors as well. And for ballet, we don't have that as much. You know, there's not a pianist, obviously, or a conductor backstage. Mm -hmm. um, but oftentimes, we might have a pianist that's a conductor, mm -hmm. too. But it, uh, it's rare for um, there to be as many ballet conductors. Mm. That's a shame. And I, I saw that you are actually creating a a project around this idea of trying to educate people. Is that right? Yeah. You know, what the thing is that, you know, as we've been talking about, we're all on the same page, you know, we're all trying to, um, uh, we're trying to participate in this art form together, you know, and too often sometimes I feel that, um, you know, the, the stereotype of musicians or dancers are trying to manipulate the music too much. Or the music goes, or the I've heard that before. Yeah. Music is a liability. And, you know, and I realized that, you know, oftentimes we have just different ways of talking about it, and it feels like we're on opposite sides of the, quote, stage. You know, there's below the stage, above the stage. But in, reali in reality, we're a part of the same art form. We're trying to, we all want the same goal, which is to have invigorating, engaging performances um, and that cause people to want to come back and do more. And so I, I have this mission where I'm trying to connect uh, dancers and musicians so that we can communicate with more directness you know, for instance, the standard thing that dancers will talk to us about are about tempi. You know, this, they feel like this is too fast or this is too slow. But the immediate thing that for us we have to we have to analyze instantly is why they are saying that, and it could be five different reasons, completely different reasons. But it would be great if you know, for instance, you know, is is it just that we didn't give enough time at the beginning, uh, right before a diagonal? for, for um, a soloist or a principal to get into place to, to do to the diagonal. So they feel rushed. Mm -hmm. Even though the tempo is great, it's just about a little bit of time to get to that diagonal. Or is the actual tempo too fast? Is the tempo too fast so that you know it's getting the dancers getting further and further behind, or is it more an idea of feeling? You know, it would be terrible to do a male variation, you know, like with like jumps and tours, um, but with a sort of lethargic feeling to it, a very phrasing that might be lyrical, right? And so they might think that the tempo is fine, but it doesn't have the right feeling, and thus they think it should be faster because faster somehow will make it more exciting. You know, there's all these different reasons why a tempo might feel fast, and in being able to communicate exactly why, it's really helpful. You know, Helgi Thomason, who's artistic director for San Francisco Ballet, he came to me once, and I think this was even actually last year. You know, I've, it's been a few years in the business now, but, you know, last year, and he said, you know, this tempo is too fast for this one section. And I looked at him a little quizzically, and I was like, oh, because they looked great. I mean, they were, everybody was where they're supposed to be, you know, and, and the music felt great. And he said, why, though? 
and it was so illuminating because he said, you know, for this, I want them not only just to be fluid from motion to motion, but to stop to be able to hold the position for a briefest of second and then before moving on to the next section. And so it's not necessarily about the moves happening exactly where they should be in the music, but to have enough time just to hold and support and to not feel rushed to mm-hmm. go off to the next um, step. And so that was suddenly illuminating to me because it wasn't just, it's too fast, and then I have to sit there and try to translate why is it too fast. But having the idea of why specifically, the reason for it, um, basically allowed us to be on the same page and understand artistically what he was looking for in the choreography. Hmm. Yeah, we, we all, uh, I'm sure I'm very much on both sides, have an emotional connection with what we're executing. So there's a, there's a feeling that you're trying to bring across through your music or through your movement on stage. And so, yeah, that makes sense. If you share that, that's a kind of a dramatic choice too, not just a, <laughs> you know, technical choice, basically. It's about the artistry of it, which is important. Exactly. <laughs> um, we were, uh, Kathy Marston did Snowblind for uh, the San Francisco Ballet's uh, 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 Unbound series, uh, these new works. And, she was uh, talking about the music and she said, you know what, don't worry about us whatsoever. I, the steps can happen in a lot of different places, but what's more important is that it needs to be, the music needs to be dramatically connected to what I'm trying to portray, emotion, in the, the emotions that I'm trying to portray, not only with the, with the dancers, but also the music as well. You know, so the dramatic intent mm-hmm. of the scene is much more important than trying to line up everything exactly. And you know, what ends up happening is that we get this question a lot, which is more important, the music or the dance? You know, and Balanchine had that great you know, line, if you don't like the choreography, just close your eyes and listen to the music. <laughs> People often try to argue or, um, you know, which is more important, but I feel it's a little bit more subtle and fluid than that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you have classical works, things are gonna line up um, rhythmically with the music much more. But if you have more modern things that um, aren't as, you know, like as, as mentioned with Kathy Marson, you know, maybe it's more about the motive, emotive aspect of it than the exactly timing things to be rhythmically together. Mm-hmm. And so for me, there's like this fluid thing where, you know, dancers will go in and out of exactly precise rhythms because sometimes that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the music, it doesn't necessarily have to be connected to the dance at every single point. You know, it's there. Are sometimes there's incredible rhythmic clarity, and sometimes it's more fluid, and that it needs to have much more of a feeling that's connected, rather than just trying to feel like you're timing things exactly together, almost mechanically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I saw a reference that you've talked about that before. The, the idea of tempo for tempo's sake, and I, I feel like I have heard that come up before as an argument. Well, well, nor, you know, if this were play, played first, you know, in just a symphony, it would it would never be played you know, anything but this way. And so the fact that you have any ideas about doing it differently is just wrong. And it's always very frustrating. It's a frustrating idea. You know, it's a, I, I feel like this happens a lot because with ballet and opera, I feel like we do the same things. But for some reason, it's wrong in ballet, but in opera, it's perfectly mm. acceptable. You know, there's this, I did this opera once, uh, Lucia de Lammermoor, which is bel canto, and... For this, it's all about the vocal, individual vocal characteristics of the soloist. So one, whoever is engaged as a principal soprano for this, 
will have a lot of ideas to say, you know what, I need this in these four bars to be a little bit slower, and then we're going to actually go twice as slow for these two bars, and then I'm going to add extra notes in this one section and make this cadenza much, much longer, and I'm also going to um, take this section a little faster here, and you know, that's just when you're when you're a musician or orchestra play, your orchestra member playing in the pit, you're just like, okay, well, that's what they need, because it's not just about the orchestra at that point, it's orchestra plus the singers, and we do that obviously in ballet all the time we say you know uh this one section for these brises just needs to go a little faster because if it's a little slow then it's going to be death and you're going to sit there and your legs are going to give out um and you know sometimes the stereotype is that musicians will say well that's just destroying the music that's not how a symphony would play it right but you know they it's not just about the music at the point it's about the music plus the visual element it's, you have a whole nother set of artists that you're collaborating with and so there are times where music, um, I, I would say, has a range. And if it out, falls outside of that range, it gets a, a lot, a very uncomfortable for us because it doesn't feel like, you know, it's it's uh, um, that the music exists as an art form anymore. But likewise, on the other side, if it's only about the music, how it exists by itself, then it might be exactly the same sort of feeling for the for the dancers. It might not have as much connection. It might not have as much meaning because everything is being sacrificed as some sort of absolute of what one person or what a few people think the music should be. You know, if you listen to a Beethoven symphony conducted by 20 different people, it's not going to be the same tempo. That's ludicrous. Mm -hmm. In fact, choreographers obviously will go through many, many different recordings to see, oh, you know what, I identify with this one a lot. It feels like it connects to my artistic ideas and the steps might work out. And so the fact that um, some people say that there's sort of an absolute on how the music should be doesn't necessarily uh, um, uh, feel like it's something that it should be... Um, uh, is, is very accurate. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this very famous story of the Gershwins, um, and I forgot what it was. I think it might have been Embraceable You. Very famous song. And it used to be really, really fast. They, it used to be sort of a, you know, like a dance, uh, um, dance step type of uh, song. And then they realized it just didn't work like that. And so they slowed it down to what it is now. Embrace you, you know. And it's a completely different piece. But that's okay. That's exactly, I mean, it had so much more life like that. Um, you know, some people take variations uh, and they're completely different people. How can you argue that, you know, a variation should have one sort of tempo or should go a certain way? Every single, you know, um, dancer is going to be different and every single orchestra is going to be different. And so it's and nothing is, is ever, I think to me, something that you can just set it and forget it because that sort of eliminates the, the life of it, mm. the life of art. Yeah, and that, that's a beautiful way of looking at it too. I, I think it also... It, it creates um, an unfortunate relationship too, sometimes between, uh, especially sometimes dancers and conductors too, because it's it's such a gift to be able to dance to live music. But if you feel like you're working with someone that is never going to listen to you, it can become a very daunting experience because you feel like, okay, I'm about to go out there and I have no idea what's about to happen to me. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's going to be, oh God. <laughs> It's when you collaborate with people, the potential, of course, is that you get something that you can all be excited about, and it's like a gestalt. It's like greater than the parts themselves. But the flip side, you need everybody to actually feel like you're 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 going on the same path because you know there are certainly um, 
uh, uh, musicians but uh, out there, but there are certainly many um, pieces that musicians get very connected to mm-hmm. that make it very difficult for them to think otherwise. You know, and the same thing actually happened. Justin Peck did a, um, Rodeo, right? And he uh, he wanted to divorce it from any idea of story. So it's nothing to do with the West. He just listened to the music and choreographed to what he felt the music was, you know, um, what was in the music. And a lot of dancers... Uh, it was one of those moments where I said, you know, this is actually how musicians feel. But the dancers would say, you know, I really, I mean, like, I like it, but I just know the original so well <laughs> that, you know, it's very hard to see it completely anew. And I think with musicians, that's oftentimes the case, because if you're doing, um, let's say, uh, a piano concerto, a very famous piano concerto, and because of the collaboration, collaborative aspect with the dancers, it's a slightly different um, way of looking at the work. They can get a little bit, um, uh, because they've, they've heard it in different ways, uh, they've heard it growing up, uh, presented it in sort of a range of ways. And if it's outside of that range, I think it makes them feel a little bit, it's just very foreign to them. You know, um, so, but you know, I think that happens a lot. And it's just about trying to figure out again, which people that you really feel like you can collaborate with. And I think that by opening up the communication to talk about specific reasons why, I think it makes it much more, um, um, not palatable, I think that's the, the wrong word, because it's not something that should be forced, but it's something that makes it more collaborative, mm-hmm. right? If you're saying, you know, well, this music, it would be really great if it was not just slower, but more emphatic, Mm-hmm. Right for us, music. If we just slow, it can have losses of energy. But if you make it really, let's say, intensely slow, mm-hmm. or you know, focused, there's lots of ways to make music slower and artistically, uh, um, what we call, what we call, you know, um, uh, I wouldn't say valid, but I mean, like, artistically work, make it work. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, you can make music that is incredibly lush and pulled out and slow. You can make music that is much more, you know, ethereal and slow, sort of like it hangs. And those are ways to alter the tempo, but also make sure that it has um, musical phrasing in life. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's actually, it, it's funny, that's so perfect for, I had asked some of my audience members questions that they might have for you. And one of them was, you know, if, if a dancer feels that their needs aren't being met or heard by a conductor, how do you have guidance about how they can express themselves respectfully and you know get their point across <laughs> i think some people get a little intimidated they hit that roadblock and then they panic and they're like oh it's he he doesn't understand what i want and it's then it becomes a scary experience but that's a really great advice about um, thinking about it in different terms how i have this idea of slow but what does that mean to them yeah and you know um one of the things is that oftentimes you know like i said um before, when we say things, are, when people say things are faster or slow, we have to sort of guess why. Mm-hmm. And the best thing, first of all, would be phrasing. You know, saying things like "I feel like this music's a little fast." Is it possible to, um, you know, it, you know, it feels like I can't do the steps in this in, uh, at that speed, or you know, I feel like this is a little bit too slow. It's getting a little bit lethargic for me, and so my muscles are tiring out. You know, giving rationale mm-hmm. oftentimes makes it um, much more easy to try to adjust to what the needs are. You know, just saying fast or slow <laughs> is hard because oftentimes some conductors or musicians might find offense to us. Well, I think it's perfectly fine. Okay, mm-hmm. well, great. <laughs> you know. Um, 
know, yeah, I, 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 um, my first time watching a full-length ballet conducted live, this was many, many years ago. I remember feeling terrified as a young dancer. I hadn't experienced it myself, and I watched a principal dancer say, this section's just too fast. I, 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 can't, I can't do it that quickly. And the, the conductor proceeded to say, well, you just need to learn how to dance faster. <laughs> and walked away. And she was like, oh, okay, all right. I guess that's not <laughs> The other thing that I would say that, to do is that the ballet masters are your advocates, mm. obviously. And, you know, if there's a feeling, um, you know, and obviously there are so many people that are talking to us about tempo. You know, um, you might have the ballet master who's heading up the core. You might have the ballet masters that are working with the principals. You have the choreographer or you have the artistic director all talking to you about different tempi. And so, so oftentimes... Um, for us, it can be a little bit um, difficult because one group might say this needs to be faster, and the other group might need to say slower. You know, or a ballet master might say, you know, they're going to say this is too fast, but they just need to get used to it because once they get on stage and the adrenaline hits, it's mm. going to be perfectly fine. So that's fine. So the best thing to do, obviously, is to um, always go to the ballet master and say, you know, it feels like it's a little too quick. What do you think? Because when they're, you know, not in the moment, they might be able to see. You know, it's it's a it's a um, it's, we have a running, it's not a joke, but we have this running uh, um, thing with uh, San Francisco and the Nutcrackers. The first time, we have a lot of snow. We have a lot of snow that's on the stage, it's like a ludicrous amount of snow that falls on the stage. And the very first time with orchestra, when the dancers are on with the snow, every single time, the snow scene, they'll say, snow scene is too fast. They're slipping all over the place. I'm like, you know, maybe it's the snow, but it's just this thing that happens every single year. We know, okay, this is a rehearsal. We're going to get yelled at for going too fast because the snow's on stage. Um, you know, there's just a lot of different things that uh, go on. But, you know, the ballet masters are the advocates. And then at any point, if it's possible, they'll say why they feel like things are too fast. Mm -hmm. You know, even if it is just flat out, it feels too fast because I can't make my steps, you know, uh, or, you know, but even, especially when you have uh, conductors that um, aren't as aware, you might say, you know, I'm not, ha I'm having difficulty getting into the place, you know, um, it, it makes a big difference, I think, because it makes it less of a personal, feeling like it's a personal direct attack saying the music's too fast mm -hmm. and say, you know, again, it's more approached from a collaborative aspect. Mm. Yeah, that's a really great way of thinking about that. Um, question in this in this realm do you ever have those moments where you feel like you have to stand firm you know you get the request and you're like i that's <laughs> not the right request or <laughs> do you ever end up feeling that way oh of course you know of course you know and, and um oftentimes you know the main thing that i feel is especially when i was dancing myself is that when you feel like something's fast you don't have time necessarily to feel like exactly analyze. You know, I was working with a, with a movie, um, doing a film track to a uh, soundtrack to a movie, mm -hmm. and there's a click track. It's like a metronome that sits there giving you the beats exactly. And the music had a little bit of lushness to it, and it made me feel like the click track was wrong. Mm -hmm. And I was like, the click track is just all over the place. I can't <laughs> believe that there's like a not a steady tempo. And in the middle of the recording session, I said to them, I said, just to be sure, this click track is exactly accurate, right? There's there's no fluctuation here. And they just gave me the fun. I mean, they didn't. I, they were in the sound booth, so I couldn't see them, but I could imagine the looks on their faces, saying, "That's just ludicrous. I don't know what you're talking about." But I said, "Oh no, the click track is steady. Would you like to do that again, Maestro?" And I'm like, "Yes, I would like to do that again." But you know, even in that instance, you know, um, musicians work with metronomes all the time because even our sense of, of exact rhythm and tempo 
can feel like it's, it's not as secure as, as a direct metronome. And so oftentimes I know that dancers have a feeling of, uh, of it's just rushed or, you know, maybe there it's uh, Monday, you know, um, um, or Tuesday for us, uh, you know, after a break day where it feels like things are just a little bit, um, you're a little lethargic um, and need a little bit of, you know, energy. Um, so it's much more to me about the feeling of being fast or slow. And so sometimes we will say, you know, like in the instance with the Nutcracker and snow and uh, the, all the snowflakes on, on the stage or whatnot, you know, actually this is probably the right tempo. We're just going to keep the right tempo and the next time they do it, it's going to be much better. Mm. You know, percussionists have a joke with uh, um, conductors too and conductors will say, hey, you know, can you use a harder mallet? You know, they have different soft mallets, they have mm. hard mallets. And that's a really big faux pas for conductors to say because you can just tell the percussionist, can you play with a little bit more accent or can you play with a little bit more precision or something like that? And so they'll pretend to put away their sticks, bring out the same exact sticks and say, yes, maestro, I'll use harder mounts. And they won't change a thing, right? <laughs> and it's sort of the sometimes we, we have to make that guess. You know, for some dancers, the adrenaline makes it, uh, them go faster and on stage and so I know especially when you get to know certain dancers that even though they might say a tempo feels a little too fast that they might actually even need a faster tempo in performance hmm. or the second time they do do it you know a principal dancer um, um, the second time is feeling much more at ease on the on the stage and as a result wants to even have a faster tempo than their their original performance and so um, you know again it's sort of the guesswork to try to figure out more of a psychological reason behind why they feel things are fast or slow and try to anticipate that. Mm -hmm. That was another thing I was wondering, actually, on the part of you working with dancers and the part of working with musicians, because you have, I'm sure, your, your own ideas of how you would like a piece to be played and everyone involved in the performance has their own idea about how a performance should be and how, how much of your job is psychology and that is yeah. it sounds like a lot it sounds like a lot of it is psychology for all of us because you know musicians you know one of the classical things is that you can't cue the brass the same way you do the strings and the way you talk to musicians um, can really destroy them you know mm -hmm. and so you know um, a horn, horns are French horns are really difficult instruments to play very, very difficult. They're, they're, the mouthpiece that they use is very small and it's a very virtuosic instrument. And, you know, the psychology of rehearsing them, saying, you know, this is a great solo. If you could just make sure that you hit that note and not crack on it, it's probably like the worst possible thing to say to a French horn player ever because it destroys sort of the confidence. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens with uh, various uh, um, areas in the ballet world. You know, if you're talking to um, a ballet master, you can be much more frank about, um, you know, um, various things and say, you know, it looks like this step is a little bit difficult for um, this particular dancer, so we're going to give a little bit more time. Mm -hmm. But you would never say that to a dancer. Oh, yeah. You know Shattered. <laughs> Your <laughs> you need us to help you out a little bit. You know, I mean, like some dancers might be like, "Yeah, sure, that sounds great." Some uh -huh. dancers would be like, "Oh, yeah. you know, my is looking terrible." It's destroyed. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and you know, like that would be <laughs> that would be terrible. Um, but um, so we have to figure out the right ways, or um, you know, um, try to figure out um, ways to phrase things, or maybe not say anything at all and talk to certain other people. Um, it's all. I think it's all very. Uh, um, uh, um, delicate sometimes when we talk about things, you know. 
Yeah. And, and when you feel encouraged too by a conductor, I, f- I feel as a dancer is it's makes a huge difference. Um, we, he's, working towards retirement currently, but a conductor that is also a pianist for us in rehearsal, Alan Dameron. Uh, I've always had a really lovely relationship with him. And I so distinctly remember so many shows in my career where I was having a really good time and he was conducting and just like having a moment actually while I was on stage with him and just feeling like Alan's cheering me on. He's going to make sure I'm going, I'm getting, I'm going to be okay. And I get what I need. And it's, it's a, it's a lovely, lovely feeling when you feel like you've had the nice moments too of, um, you know, you've gotten to know each other over time and you've built a nice rapport and. Oh, definitely. You know, and you know, like it's life art form. Not everything is going to be perfect, but just the idea that you have somebody that's going to try to support you, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, musicians have this, uh, stereotype too for conductors where you can either somebody that connects with you face to face, you can see their faces or somebody that just has their head literally buried <laughs> in their score and all you can see is the top of their head. Right. And it's very disconcerting to try to make music with somebody's, you know, the top of somebody's head. And so I think it's sometimes the same thing with dancers too. Is if he's like, we actually have one of the best seats in the house, <laughs> right there. We viscerally feel the music it's right there, and with the, the be- one of the best views of the house too. And to have a connection, to know that you know um, we're watching out for the dancers, we're trying to make adjustments for each cast, or knowing where the difficult areas are in variations and um, and. Uh, being aware of the variations that can happen with, you know, the, where the changes that could happen on a moment's notice, I think makes a big difference. You know, it's it's there are there are definitely houses, there are entire houses, where their whole goal is, look, the music's going to be like this every single night. You're just going to have to deal with it, mm-hmm. right? But again, it doesn't feel like that's as much of a um, a live art form um, because we don't do that with we try not to do that with orchestra. You know, um, every soloist in the orchestra, the, the instrumental soloist, might have a different way of playing each each night um might have a different you know might be having a bad day you know like oboes their reeds are difficult you know maybe they're having a bad day they need things to be a little bit quicker or a little bit more sustained um it's much more engaging and much to me it's much more genuine when everybody is involved in the moment Mm -hmm. you know i mean there are orchestra musicians that have played thousands, like four digits of Nutcrackers. Obviously, like dancers. I mean, like there, there are people that you know have counted over a thousand Nutcrackers. And so, if you have somebody that's just going to do their job in day in day out without any idea that this is going to be different, it's it's just it feels a little bit. Um, it doesn't feel quite right because mm-hmm. you know there are, there are people in the audience that are going to the ballet for the first time. Don't we owe them, you know, the the best performance that we can get, you know? And it doesn't mean that every single night's going to be absolutely brilliant, you know? People fall on stage, you know, instrumentalists crack or get lost. Um, uh, It doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect. But we have that, I think we should have that commitment Mm -hmm. to try to make the... uh, the performance as engaging as possible. Yeah, our art is humanity. We're not robots. So on either side. So yeah, it's important to have allow the humanity in. <laughs> and so when you're up there, you you feel like you really can feel the energy of the dancers while they're performing. Do you feed off of that? Oh yeah, definitely. You know, definitely because uh, um, you can tell, especially you know, there's like you know the moments maybe somebody has been um this is their first time dancing a major role and you know that they are incredibly psyched or very nervous or you know and you know you can feel the energy a little bit not necessarily because they show it but that you know them as people and again that collaborative aspect is really um, important because we want to make sure that um 
you know, we have a, obviously the music is a, is a huge role and anything that we can do to make the performance engaging while also, um, supporting, you know, everybody, you know, orchestra musicians as well as dancers too, I think is important. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, one of the little tricks that we do is that with core, um, ensemble numbers you know if you're doing a very long tour or something so you might actually increase the tempo slightly from performance to from performance because mm-hmm. if you're like if you're you're on tour and you're doing your 20th performance of you know sleeping beauty waltz um you know it can be very comfortable feeling after a while and it sort of lacks that sort of energy and edge to it and so by increasing the tempo just the tiniest bit from night to night you know, we do this Nutcracker all the time, actually. I don't know if I can say this out loud, but <laughs> we, we actually increase the tempo quite a bit from the first performance into the last performance for some of the ensemble members because, you know, um, uh, you want to always keep it fresh or do change things. You know, that's also for the orchestra's sake, too. Mm. You don't want them to get into a mindset where they just kind of keep their blinders on it and, and just execute, you know. You want them to feel like they, they do have to engage with all the other orchestra musicians mm-hmm. and um, that they not necessarily take you know, can't take anything for granted, but that they're uh, mentally engaged in the moment. Mm-hmm. Keep it fresh. It's good. <laughs> um, so when you're preparing for performances with ballet companies, do you spend much time in the studio with them too, watching rehearsals or seeing what, what casts are doing what kind of thing? Yeah, as much as possible. Um, it's hard because sometimes economics, especially when you're visiting uh, certain companies, you know, to have extra per diem, mm-hmm. extra hotel stay, that type of stuff can add up quite a bit. And so, you know, I did a Sleeping Beauty recently um, with uh, Boston Ballet, and I showed up literally the week of the performances. I think the performances were Friday, and I showed up on a Tuesday. Um, And luckily, nowadays, there are so many videos, and there's YouTube, and um, uh, Boston Ballet um, uh, with Miko is very heavily influenced by the Royal Ballet's version of Sleeping Beauty. And so you can see sort of different approaches to see some historic, you know, Royal Ballet um, versions. Um, But it's still with multiple casts felt a little bit frantic because you know if you're showing up and you only have one or two opportunities to see a principal cast do their variations of how it does um, you don't necessarily as a visiting as a guest conductor you don't necessarily get to have as much of an idea of the certain tendencies where uh, of uh, certain couples and dancers and so you know San Francisco especially with the principals that have been there for a while you know you know, I'll, I'll know their tendencies inside now because you know you've seen them uh, in so many different situations, um, and so you know, you know, one dancer, uh, I, I love her to death. She's she's very much the one that after the second performance of her of her um, uh, so her second performance is always quicker hmm. than her opening performance. Or there's others which when they get on the stage are much more about you know precision and holding and positions, and so you actually give them a little bit more breath. You know, um, and you're not as worried about you know tiring out, uh, tiring them out from you know actually holding too long. You know, and so yeah, I, I think it's hard, but you know nowadays it's so great because there's so many videos and mm-hmm. you can see really the, the um, hopefully if it's a good take, um, you know what the choreography should be, um, and and try to 
absorb as much as possible before you get into the studio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you, you do like to study as much as you can beforehand. That's lovely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, every single production is going to be different. You know, maybe this one focuses much more on one area, it's just like every single Nutcracker, obviously. You know, like they switch all the, the character variations all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, but every single, even the set will play a big difference um, um, if they get in the way or. Um, you know, how big the stage is. Um, I did a, where was this? Maybe in Billings, um, where the stage was about half the size of what the company, visiting company in San Diego was used to. And so um, some of the variations actually had to be adjusted quite a bit on, to what they were used to because they just had very little space, mm. you know, and so they didn't need as much time to run to, a, you know, the corner for a diagonal, you know. Um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of factors come into play. You like to be prepared. <laughs> so it sounds like a good strategy to me. Um, so I'm wondering, too, I had another audience question for you as far as dancers go. Um, do you have any guidance for a dancer that is dancing to live music for the first time? I think a lot of upper-level students uh, have this experience where maybe they get, like I said, nutcracker and that's it. And it's like, oh, my God, this first time ever. And what do I expect from this experience? How should I handle this experience? Do you have any words of wisdom for them? <laughs> I mean, I think the, the, the biggest thing is that I see is that there's a huge difference, and this, it sounds obvious, but it's obvious for different reasons, between the piano and the orchestra. And the tendencies in the studio, the pianos have very clear tendencies. It might sound quicker. Uh, there's a lot more uh, rhythmic aspect, whereas you know strings in an orchestra, it's very hard to hear the rhythm sometimes because it's much more lush. And so that feeling alone is very difficult. But the second thing is that, again, I think that when you step on the stage outside of the studio, even if the studio is exactly proportioned down, the stage manager does a phenomenal job getting set pieces <laughs> at least mapped out, it's going to have a completely different feeling to it. And so knowing that, obviously, we are trying to do our best to try to maintain consistency between the studio and the stage um, and trusting in that a bit, I think, is important. If you're a core member, you know, as part of an ensemble, um, then, you know, it's it's all about communicating with a ballet master and seeing if this is really um, something you have to get used to or not. But the traditionally... What ends up happening is that things feel a little bit slower with the orchestra mm. um, because usually the orchestra doesn't have the capacity to actually um, rush. You know, they, their instruments actually sustain through notes, whereas piano is much more percussive, so you don't actually have that sustain. And so it, with the orchestra, can sometimes feel like it, get, it got a little bit slower. Um, and so that's one thing. But uh, um, if you're a soloist for the first time, I think that the, it's uh, doing a variation then it's the, the two things just being very just normal I mean you don't have to be like overtly polite but you shouldn't be you know too direct or rude but you can basically just you know communicate with the conductor that's what we're here for anyway and then obviously talk to the ballet master because you know um, having seen billions of, uh, of uh, variations and people doing these variations they'll have a huge vast store of, of knowledge and you know what really should be at a certain tempo, you know, and it's just about getting comfortable versus something that's actually too fast mm. or like it's too slow. It's maybe slow because you're supposed to actually um, express through movement um, and not just, you know, think about doing the movement and moving on to another movement. And they're going to help basically say, no, 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 it's more about filling out and this is sort of the feeling, you know, um, um, 
like speaking of like, Sleeping Beauty, you know, generosity and the idea that the pizzicato strings are like breadcrumbs being <laughs> you know thrown around and whatnot, and you know those ideas I think uh, um, um, sort of help. You know, the ballet master is always your advocate to them first. Yep, good good advice. Uh, I wanted to talk a bit about this upcoming show that you have, San Francisco Ballet is touring to the Kennedy Center, and it looks like a very exciting program, and you are touring with them, but this is your ninth tour, is that right, with the company? Yes. Uh, wow. has a very interesting schedule because we share the opera house with the opera, hmm. and so for six months out of the year, it's only the opera, and for six months out of the year, it's only the ballet, and so it makes our rehearsal schedule a little bit odd because during the season we don't have as much time to fully learn pieces so we actually learn them in the summer and the fall and then relearn them a little bit and put them on in the spring but what that does afford is more opportunity to tour during that time and so this past spring san francisco ballet had their unbound uh, series 12 new works uh, from 12 fantastic choreographers and they're completely different it always amazes me the range it's not like you got a whole bunch of them that were sort of one style and a few of them another style and then one rather ludicrous one they actually were completely across the range from a very very classically driven you know Stanton Welsh um, uh, Bejeweled you know uh, uh, Bejeweled um, and a very classical work to uh, music of Bjorn all over the place with Arthur Pita and be completely bizarre and amazing and so and everything in between and so um, it was oh sorry uh, Stanton Welsh's piece was bespoke um, and it was it was a really fantastic festival, but it's now uh, the opportunity to tour with these works. And so we're going to the Kennedy Center presenting quite a few of them. And Martin West, the principal conductor and the music director, obviously, for San Francisco Ballet and I are going to be sharing the conducting responsibilities. And not quite sure which ones I'm going to be involved in or, um, um, or he is, but it's always a really... Uh, exciting time to take things on tour because audiences are very different mm-hmm. and um, just like you know we feed off the energy of the, the orchestra and the orchestra is very different too um, uh, it's a very different experience t- taking them to different cities and I think that's part of the fun for me you know the Kennedy Center Opera Orchestra which is the orchestra in residence at the Kennedy Center performs their ballets and operas um, and we've worked I've worked with them with Martin um, I think I've, this is my third time with them yeah, it's the third time. Romeo and Juliet and Cinderella with them beforehand, and um, they're a fantastic group. They play they play so much repertoire. Well, it's a very different group than San Francisco Ballet Orchestra, and so um, um, it's, it'll be good to see them again. Yeah. Mm. What is it like preparing a group? You've worked with them before, as you just said, but uh, you're coming in with six different ballets all of a sudden that are going to be performed for a pretty short amount of time you know it's this window what is that like as far as preparing a different orchestra to do something like that as a conductor part of the fun i think is that they have no preconceived notions on Mm -hmm. what the music um how it goes and so actually it can be very freeing because if you're going to do um you know they're they're professional musicians so they're basically they know that every single time is every single production is going to be very different and they're very aware of that um but especially if you have works that have only literally been premiered like the music has been premiered as well um you know i think that uh the rehearsal process can be very freeing because they don't know necessarily how to approach it and to work together to do that can be much easier sometimes hmm. That's really great. How, do, they, do they have much time to prepare? Do you get to spend much time with them before you have the shows? Um, it depends. Uh, it depends <laughs> on the company. Sometimes, you know, 
um, especially with Nutcracker, there's one one uh, uh, group where the first rehearsal with the orchestra, they didn't have an orchestra alone rehearsals. The first rehearsal was on stage with the dancers and everybody. Oh, wow. And had to be. Um, um, with Kennedy Center with this tour um, Kennedy Center we actually have quite a bit of rehearsal time so it's going to be comfortable I would say Um, you know I know certain companies they don't get a lot of rehearsal time and it can be very difficult Um, you know some companies um, you know might have an orchestra only rehearsal and the next time is in a performance the dancers don't even get a time with the orchestra Um, but with these works uh, I think there is quite a bit of um, time allocated to make sure that everybody's comfortable that's great. Yeah, I saw it's the East Coast premiere of all of these pieces. That's so it's a big deal. It's a really exciting show. So I'm sure everyone wants it to go off very smoothly, <laughs> especially considering major choreographers. You know, really, really famous people in the dance world right now that are doing a lot of amazing work. So uh, yeah, everyone wants to present those <laughs> those ideas well. Uh, do you know will the choreographers be coming to the performances or? Will you, sure. will you work with them again there? Yeah. They, I mean, they, they've already been, I think they'll definitely be coming in again to, to help set, reset things. Um, but I think the intention for San Francisco is to tour these around for a bit. So um, uh, this is, especially since the first tour outside of San Francisco, I'm sure they'll be coming back. But I, I believe a bunch of them are coming back for the London tour, Southern Wells in, uh, in 2019. And then, you know, if they go for future tours, um, Generally, I think the the best thing to do is obviously bring them back just to make sure that their ideas are being portrayed and mm-hmm. set well. So, yeah, it's very very fresh information, so everyone wants to make sure it's uh, people are still on the right page. I'm sure. Uh, how is it for you? You said there there were, are some musical premieres, and all of these pieces are premieres. What is it like as far as working with a choreographer in that situation where everything's new and you're being brought in to help them take it to the stage? What is that like for you? Oh, it's one of my favorite things. <laughs> New music is fantastic because, uh, um, you know, back in like the days of, let's say, Brahms, okay, or, or outside, how about Mozart and Beethoven, there's sort of a certain style in which you compose music. You know, there was a certain, like the classical style. Um, and then the further you get in music uh, history, you know, to the 21st century, it's not only about what people are saying through their music, but they're also trying to develop their own musical voice, you know. And so, um, um, you know, composers nowadays, they might have very, very different ways of approaching it because especially Especially, especially nowadays, we're so international. We have hundreds of different types of music. I mean, like, I I, I went through a country phase once, and you know, um, <laughs> you know, I drove across country quite a bit. And the only thing that were, were was on the radio religiously were right wing talk radio or country. Music. And so those years, I know the top forty for country music, like inside now. <laughs> They listen to you know uh, techno music and jazz and you know classical and everything, but we have so many different styles we were of music that we listen to, and so choreographers have this huge potpourri of different types of music that they can, from which they can pull, which is why it was really fun during the uh, the New Works Festival because you did get people like I said taking from Bach you know, um, 350 years ago to, to, uh, Bjork, you know, um, and it was a really great, um, range of music. Um, but also the way they approach the music is very different. There are composers that were commissioned by the choreographer. Mm. And so their music is completely of service to the idea of the choreographer. There are pieces that like the Bach that are obviously 300 years old and so are being, you know, choreographed on top of, 
and so the way you approach it is very different. Um, and I think that um, having composers there for the newly composed works um, are really uh, fantastic because they become another artistic voice for with, uh, with which to uh, collaborate. And um, with the with the older works that are works that were set upon um, pieces that were used for a chore a new choreography, um, it's there's a whole host of music um, approaches to that that you can take. You know, Bach is really funny because there's a quote period style where you try to perform it like it would have been done 300 years ago, and then there's the exact opposite where people throw billions of instruments into it. And Stokowski, uh, this famous uh, uh, you know uh, conductor and, and um, arranger. Um, would add like xylophones, which didn't exist in Bach's time, you know, to his music, and it would be this huge range of how you could approach Bach. And so, you know, not like one way to do Bach. There are certain ideas that people have, but it, there's a lot of flexibility that I think people get a little bit too rigid about sometimes. Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, it's, it's fun to explore. It's fun for us, too, as dancers. It's great to have people come in that um, kind of turn certain ideas you had about dance on its head a little bit, and you can see what else is out there, and how you can be a part of that is a really great feeling to have. It's like, I fit into this new idea. That's really cool. Um, so you, you've worked with so many great current choreographers, and I don't want to completely put you on the spot or anything, but do you have any any that you have a particular fondness for working with lately? You know, it's it's interesting. Um, I like them a lot for different reasons. Like, for instance, Kathy Marston, we just her Snowblind. You know, she's all about stories, and it's not about necessarily um, um, sort of in interesting geometric shapes on stage or whatnot. But it's about the motive, emotive aspect of and creating moments through the choreography and the music. Um, that make it impactful, and then Wielden, you know, he just has this gift, I think, for for um, for structure somehow. You know, there there's there's these works. His work was called Bound. It was this idea about cell phones and how we're so tied to you know technology and social media and whatnot, and how that can be have a detrimental effect. But the and so there were some aspects of the music that was electronic that merged into acoustic, mm -hmm. and likewise the same thing. There were there were. Um, you know, cell phones and iPads on stage. You know, with the with the screens lit up, and so some of that stuff was really interesting technologically and very you know different that we see in LA. But some of the best parts were just the pure dancing. You know, um, and you know, again for me, he has this incredible way with groups of people um, that make it very. Uh, um, it's actually is more of that sort of geometric style. There's a sort of um, symmetry that happens, or this way of focusing on certain areas that makes it really interesting. Um, Liam Scarlett is one of these people that I think is sort of in the middle, and so you know, um, I think we're uh, taking um, his Hummingbird, um, which is a fantastic work, but it's sort of the same thing. It's this, this visceral energy that comes from the core dances and this incredible emotional moments that happen on stage. You know, there's this moment where the piano plays one single note in the middle of this sea of strings, and it's at the very point where um, the principles meet face to face. And that moment just gives me chills every single time. And, you know, it could be the 12th performance of it. It's just something that I, it just somehow catches me off guard because I think the strings are, um, you know, the way they surge and the way they, uh, they build, you know, it can be, it, it sort of, the piano, I've written to be like this, really creates that moment seemingly, um, not randomly because it's obviously 
instrument in the music, but it feels like that. And to have the swirling masses on stage mimic that, and then uh, the two principals meet face to face and just raise a little bit, you know, um, uh, um, a little bit on their on their toes. It's just such a beautiful moment. And so I don't know. Every single one has their own voice, you know. Um, um, Ed Liang has these gorgeous visual imagery, and of course, he he always works with uh, um, uh, Wan Wan or Wai Wai, and um, she is so flexible. And so to see him as a choreographer really push her to her limits to utilize her flexibility like that, or her very very long limbs, um, you know, it's really a, um, it's it's amazing. And I think it's just you know every single one is different, every single one of them. And part of the great thing about you know Arthur Pita, I mean, it was. Bizarre. I don't want to give away too much. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure everyone is going to come. It sounds like a great show, regardless. So go for it. <laughs> but I mean, you know, like he, he, just the novelty, you know, and the inventiveness, and the the you know, we did a piece of his where there was we had to build or sort of build or or manufacture a limo to come out on the stage. You know, and there are these confetti cannons that were incredibly evocatively used at certain moments, like emotional moments, where all of a sudden the entire stage would be bathed in this red uh, confetti. This is for Salome. And so, you know, you know Dance of Southern Veils with like red confetti, like imagine blood and, and, and just uh, just uh, pure raw energy. You know, I think it's, it's really, um, I don't know, I, li- I like new work, you know. Uh, you don't know what to expect, first of all, because we have such a range of ways we dance now, you know, because, you know, ballet companies aren't just doing classic works. They're not just doing, you know, new works. They're sort of, especially large companies, doing a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. And to have a choreographer come in and find something along the edge or even beyond it, push the edges, I think is really exciting. So I, I get really invigorated. <laughs> I, I can definitely tell. I was, I was going to say, speaking of energy, um, I understand you have quite a reputation for being a very passionate and energetic commanding performer yourself while you're on the podium. What is a show like for you? Are you just exhausted after? <laughs> it sounds like you put so much. <laughs> it's so funny because I think that I get exhausted if it feels like it's a slog to get through mm. and it, like you're fighting against things. But for some reason, if it's a really engaging performance or you really feel that something is absolutely really working and um, dancers having a fantastic night, the orchestra sounds fantastic, I actually get more energy at the end. That doesn't mean that like, I'm physically able to conduct <laughs> another five performances or something like that. You know, physically, I will be quite a bit you know, uh, spent. But I think emotionally, and uh, I, I get very excited with those things. And you know, it's it's what we're here to do, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's why we're in the art form. It's a, these art forms are so difficult to make a career in, you know. And um, you know, to have those moments, I think, are the ones that drive us. To have those moments, like you know, like I was a terrible violinist. I was I played piano. I play piano, and you know, I'm a terrible violinist. But I still remember literally one note that I played when I was like ten, and. The teacher was like, "Wow, you played a really great note." And I, I remember thinking, "I'm just like, is that? I, did I do that? That's amazing." And I still remember that. And all of us have those moments where there are performances that we've seen, participated in, or just like watched that we get we get inspired by. And to get to an end of a performance where you hopefully have had some of those moments for other people to experience or yourself, I think makes me very excited. Mm. And if we're not here to, you know, excite people and get them engaged with the, with the art form, then what are we doing? You know? Yeah, exactly. I know, but people, I mean, <laughs> it's a constant battle for funding and everything in the arts and 
the constant question of, you know, well, why, why the arts? It's a, it, they're, you know, all these very, very old forms of entertainment. Why, why still do it now? And it's because the emotional effect of art is supposed to be everlasting. Like you said, you can remember even the things that you've just been in the audience for that really affected you. And that's, that's why <laughs> it's those moments. <laughs> One thing that I've been saying when I, when I do speeches or when I go to not talk to donors is that, you know, um, and this is obviously just from the musical side, but music has been a part of every single society that have, has ever existed on earth. Even if sometimes it's difficult to articulate specifically why, or we have lots of different reasons why we say why music is important. There's no doubt that music has some critical you know, direct importance to who we are as people, right? And as a result, you know, you can see from that alone is rationale why, you know, the arts uh, and music are, are so important. You know, um, all these studies about, um, there was this great one about physical activity, which was basically that um, a school district said, you know, recess is 15 minutes and gym is 15 minutes, you know. Can we just cut that out? If we cut out 15 minutes of the recess that they have per day, Five days of 75 extra instructional minutes, and then over the course of 40 extra, you know, weeks or however many weeks in the school year, that's an additional 40 hours. Can you imagine what you can do with it? And they tried it and it had the exact opposite, you know, uh, uh, impact. You know, people their test scores got worse, and we realized that you know this is something that's necessary. You know, um, we are not just you know robots that are working on you know math and reading and etc. You know, the way that we express ourselves is integral to who we are as people. You know, and as everybody knows that we are artistic, we are artistic beings. You know, every single one of us needs to express ourselves and to connect to others through that. I think is really a, um, one of the like you're saying. You know, like that's sort of sort of one of our reasons that's who we are as humans it's like you know we um, I don't know it's sort of a I just go back to the excitement it's just it's, I feel like it's my responsibility to be part of this art forum that gets people excited and that can, can express you know through yeah. the arts yeah it's a be beautiful thing to be a part of uh, is that I was I want to talk to you about your all your work in education is that what made you so passionate about working for education that feeling for you Oh, definitely, because I, I think there's no difference in talking to a classroom of seven-year-olds than it is talking to a board of directors. I mean, the whole point is to get them involved with the art form, to get them involved with the details about the choreography or the music, and to get them excited about it. Because the, we know that you know this is something that's important to all of us, and, and to get them excited about it instead of taking an idea of, of posturing or condescension, like you know sometimes with pre-concert lectures, <laughs> you get so dry. Yeah. You know, Tchaikovsky wrote this work in 1870, and he was feeling uh, you know seasick, and he etc. And then instead of talking about the emotional aspect, you know, 1870 was when Tchaikovsky tried to kill himself. Why? He wrote in his diary that he walked into the river, and he, it was only until his entire body was numb that he, you know, he decided to try to go on and live. And that's what the impetus for this, the Fourth Symphony was. That's what the impetus for the, um, that's what the impetus for Yegin was. And I think it's a really, um, it's really engaging to talk about that and get people excited about that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the re relatable things. Those are the things that everyone uh, involved in the arts or not can relate to. It's a human experience. It's why it's why people that aren't dancers that aren't musicians go to have these experiences, as it brings out the soul of them that they don't get to bring out otherwise. Um, do you have any education initiatives that you're particularly proud of that you've been working on? 
Well, you know, in, in Berkeley Symphony, we do this thing called I'm a Musician, and it's sort of the same thing that you're saying. It's like the whole goal is to humanize musicians and music itself. You know, um, it's like the – I equate it when I talk to them about seeing your classroom teacher in the supermarket. And they'll be like, Mrs. Orlovic, don't you just live in the classroom? <laughs> you're a real person? What? <laughs> it's like, yeah, we, we might carry around our instrument all day, but we don't walk around in tuxes all day, you know? <laughs> And so we do this great thing where there's three phases where it's um, musicians come to them in jeans or whatever their everyday clothes is. They go to their classrooms and talk about it. A lot of them grew up in Berkeley, so you can say, you know, I actually went to this elementary school. Mm. And then they perform for them a typical education concert. But instead of just being an education concert, they know people in the orchestra now and they've met them. And then the third part is my favorite part. It's called the I'm a performer. Whereas no matter what their musical background is, even if they've never picked up a musical instrument at all, every single one of them performs with the Berkeley Symphony. And so they might make a percussion instrument and everybody can play, you know, like do some rhythms on a percussion instrument. So that's, you know, that they're going to be that um, uh, direct exposure. Or if they've been playing violin for four months, they'll play a melody that they've learned that is achievable in four months. Mm. And then the Berkeley Symphony will play an accompaniment to that, uh, to that, which is very complicated. And so everybody's playing at their ability level and their technical ability level. And so not only did they meet a musician, which humanizes them, and then see what that person does, but then the same way they get to sit alongside that person and actually make music with them. Mm. And so it's, a, it's that idea of humanizing. And, you know, they, I'm on this mission with, uh, with dance and music because I think that um, uh, I'm trying to develop this workshop where we, back, we actually talk about some aspects of the music and try to get dancers and, and musicians literally on the same page, you know, using the same vocabulary or talking about ways to communicate better. Because, you know, like we're saying, uh, um, you know, one very stereotypical thing for dancers and musicians where they have difficulty talking about in describing how to make the tempo. So dancers might say, you know, this music just needs to be steady here, mm -hmm. or you need to keep up the tempo here, right? And to a musician, that means one thing doesn't mean two different things and it doesn't mean anything what the dancer thinks it means what it means to the dancers right keep up the tempo oftentimes for a dancer might be like it can't get too slow it needs to be a little bit fast it can be a little faster if you need to but you know like just make sure it doesn't get slower because it's going to kill me right or it's going to be a steady tempo means like exactly the opposite you know if it gets any faster it's going to be death for us and we're going to have to leave out steps you just have to make sure that it's, it's could even be a little slower, steadier. But for a musician, especially one that hasn't worked with dancers before, those just mean keep a steady tempo. And so they'll just do keep exactly the same tempo whatsoever. They're not knowing the context from that, which is one means whatever you do, don't get faster than this, or whatever you do, don't get slower than this. You know, and so it's sort of having workshops where we actually talk about this. Or the idea is that, you know, choreographers, ballet masters, and dancers will all come up to us and say, what are the counts for this? You know, and for music, we don't use counts the same way. Mm -hmm. They're a completely different thing. So you could make up whatever counts you want. Some choreographers love everything in eights, but they just know that there's going to be a strong beat on weird beats like the seven or the two or something like that. Some people want counts where every single strong beat is going to be on a one, right? And so counts are just your way, of, dancers' ways of just navigating the music. And so they have nothing to do with what the music is saying the counts are. You know, um, was it? Is it when Tybalt dies in, in, in Romeo and Juliet? There's like these 14 hits of this chord. Ta, mm -hmm. ta. It's a very tense moment, and you know, um, hell breaks loose from that point on. And the dancers kept coming up to me, just like, just making sure there are 15 of these, right? And I was like, that's 
funny because I, I count 14. But why, where do you hear 15? And then, you know, the, the one piano said, you know, they're counting 15 because the 15 is the note right before. There's 14 very similar notes. Mm. And then there's one note which is actually a pickup into oh, yeah. a huge <laughs> downbeat. You know? And it's actually a 15 count. And then I realized, you know what? That's just, it's one's not right, one's not wrong. Mm-hmm. They're just different. And knowing that they're both okay and they're both different is just part of the communication, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I'm on a mission for education to do that because I think that um, um, there's a lot of uh, misunderstandings that arise that can lead to some friction, and I don't think any of that's necessary. You know, um, one major choreographer came up to me and was like, and she was like, you know, can, can I talk to the orchestra? I'm like, of course you can. <laughs> Why do you think you can't talk to the orchestra? They're like, well, some people get really testy and, and, and I'm not sure what the etiquette is. So I'm like, well, you can always talk to them. I mean, like, that's not a, um, I think musicians love it when dancers and choreographers talk to them. Usually, you know, like, if it's nice things. If, it's, yeah. uh, it's <laughs> if they're not just yelling at them, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> um, so I, I like education because, again, I don't separate it um, um, I don't think of it as only trying to convince the next generation that the art form is is valid, right? And I think too oftentimes education is done in a way where, like, well, you have to preserve the art form, so you have to get them indoctrinated beforehand. And the thing is, there's, there's nothing to indoctrinate them about because they are just as moved by it. If we give great performances, if we're passionate about it, we don't have to convince them. The art form does that for mm-hmm. us. You know, it's more about just being excited and engaged in it and that spreading and people wanting more because of that. You know, we don't have to convince people that ballet is a great art form. It is. I mean, that's you know, like all of us are in it. All of us have been touched by it. And those that um, see engaging performances uh, get convinced by that, you know. And so um, just like, you know, uh, the symphonic um, symphonic music um, and museums and everything and great painting and sculptures – I mean, I saw a Rodin exhibit that was at, um, in San Francisco recently. And, you know, I see pictures of Rodin's works all the time. But when I was physically in front of it, that was a life-transforming experience. You know, and, like, you know, you hear some of the same buzzwords that I've heard from other people going to Rodin exhibits where I'm just like, there's so much emotion in it. There's so much emotion in it. And I, I kept on saying, yeah, I mean, he's, he's you know, thinking and, and stuff. But, I mean, like, I've you see it from different angles, but to see it physically in front of you mm-hmm. is really, really, um, um, it just, it's awe-inspiring. It's just very, it stops me in my tracks a little bit. And I think for dance, it's the same thing. It's just like, you know, you can see things, but the value of live art form is that there is a palpable feeling. There's a directness when you're physically in the room with them, um, in with the performance that is so thrilling, you know, um, there's, you know, like the tenderness of the Giselle or, um, you know, the muscularity of, of a male variation. Um, you know, I think that, you know, those things are much more immediate, just like the way that the sculpture was much more uh, impactful when I was directly in physical contact with it or, you know, in physical proximity of it. Um, that's why, I mean, like, that's why musicians, you know, we, we try to advocate, obviously, for live music all the time with ballet because there's a difference. There's an mm-hmm. absolute difference because there's more of a direct connection. They're not art forms co- currently working at the same time. Um, and it's just a much more, um, it's much more um, uh, visceral experience. Yeah, it seems like you dedicate so much of your time to creating opportunities for people to have more exposure to live music, to, under- you know, 
being welcome at dance or feeling welcome at dance. And that seems to me, yeah, the same, the key to our future success is allowing people to just have their experiences. That's, that is the whole point is to give them that moment. So the more we can create accessibility, the better. Yeah. You know, when I first saw an opera, it was Bohem and Bohem starts off with, um, you know, these people, these poor, poor students that are barely making a living. And then one of them just had a great gig and comes back with all this food, all this wine, all this stuff. And they start partying and all that kind of stuff. And um, all I remember were two things from the, from the opera for the first time, which is one, that um, they were pretending sword fighting with two baguettes, but one of the baguettes actually broke. And you could tell that that wasn't scripted at all. <laughs> so it was really funny. Um, but the second thing was my teacher walking up and down the aisles, making sure nobody moved or said a sound. Those were literally the only two things I got from opera. Nobody told me, A, what the story was. Nobody said anything about the fact that they were not amplified. You have people singing over an entire orchestra, and they are not amplified. How can one person's voice go over 60 people in the orchestra playing loud instruments, like brass instruments, and it's not amplified? Or the fact that these people are singing really, really high notes at times. There's a high C for the tenor that's not in the music that gets added in. All these really fun things about the music and the art form. And the only things I remember from that first performance was you know, the teacher being very stern, walking up and down the aisle, because we, didn't, we couldn't move or anything. And then B... You know, <laughs> the baguette breaking, <laughs> um, breaking bread on stage. Um, but, you know, when people hear music, they naturally move. Music is processed in similar areas in the brain as movement. And so when little kids experience music, their incredible first inclination is to move. Mm -hmm. And so clamping down on that natural instinct it's just, it's not, you know, so saying, you know, like, well, these people are just squirming around during the symphony performance, you know, like, but, you know, how can they not? Our body wants to express itself, especially when we hear music, you know? Um, if kids, it's their first instinct, again, that serves, just lends idea to what the value of the art form is, you know, because this is, it's just uh, um, something that's been a part of us for, for our entire being, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's, sorry, and this is all just, <laughs> I love everything you're saying. It's just so beautiful to think about the, the physicality married to, uh, to music is, I'm, it's just a beautiful idea. And then it, <laughs> don't mind me. Um, yeah, I uh, wanted to ask you a little bit about a quote I saw that you, uh, I, I've read that you live by this a bit, is the idea that you got from uh, Robert Page, that conductors are conductors. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, this is going back to the idea that um, all music is music. And there are not sort of certain areas of music. I think that the idea is that you know, conductors, our whole point is to be of service to the musicians that are performing and for the artists that we're working with. And so when you conduct strings, you're going to naturally, we learn in school that you have to cue the brass players or the woodwind players in very different ways. Strings, there are 16 first violins often, maybe 14 second violins, and they have a, a really a big awareness of how every single one of them is playing because they want to match, they want to uh, make sure they have a uniform sound. And so they can also sneak in and not necessarily, you know, um, until everybody else is playing at the same time. Whereas 
brass players, it's one person in the park. They can't sneak in at all. You know, it'd be terrible to have a brass player sneak in. You know, they're, they're stereotypically brash. You know, they're very, very aggressive and, and because they need to have precision and just go for the notes. But the same thing happens for vocalists. You conduct a chorus in very different ways. You conduct soloists in very different ways because sometimes a the soloist, they're helping lead you. Sometimes you need to help lead them. Sometimes there are moments where it's just a pure collaboration. And dancers is the same thing, too. I think that the only thing that holds back the musicians from being a work of dancers is that you want to know as much about the people and their the difficulties that they go through and what they need what they need in the art form to be able to collaborate. And so I need to know when working with a singer how it sounds when they're struggling for breath. Even though the audience might not perceive it, but just realizing, you know what, this is actually too slow for them and they're struggling to actually figure out where to breathe or they had to take an extra catch breath that nobody else would notice but we have to be aware of that. Or saying, you know, in this in this one passage where they, they sing a lot of notes very, very fast, melismatic, we call it, um, music, that they need a certain tempo for that. And just as so much as that awareness for singers is needed, the same thing goes for conductors and musicians that work with dance. We need to know what, it, what it's, what, we need to be able to um, connect with what it, what it looks like and feels like what people are doing for days, right? Even if you can't do them, you know, like I can barely do it with double lines. But I like, you know, um, but you know, just the physicality of it, saying, you know, if you're doing it, it's about, you know, when the engagement at the turn is, you know, or when you do, or when a male is doing Alice and Collins or whatnot, there are certain points in the music where you might be together with them, but it feels terrible for them because it feels like they're on the back of the beat and they can't ever get going, and as a result, it makes them feel like their center of support is actually not very solid and sinking, right? And so it's exactly the opposite. If they have a great tempo, and they feel like the music has energy that's propelling them. And so if you're not aware of those things, and you're just trying to flat out hit tempi, then I think that you're not going to be as um, uh, you're not going to be as good of a partner to the dancers. And the more you can be partners, the more you can be collaborators, the better, I think, the more possibilities there are to have phenomenal performances. You know, there's one time where there's a dancer that said, you know, like, I just I want to thank you so much because I was really feeling a little bit logy today, but this music really helps me at this point. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, for, it's for things like that that I think are where we have the most service, you know, where we can help out the most. Because, uh, um, you know, we would never say to an opera singer, Hey, was this tempo okay? I mean, like, I was just hitting this tempo and, like, not listen to anything else, you know? Or do you need a little bit more time here to get here and then I'll just hit this tempo, right? And so that sounds ludicrous if you were saying that an opera singer, but that's what's completely standard for working with ballet. This is a tempo I'm going to hit and we'll ask afterwards to see if that's okay, right? Or, okay, I'll give you a little bit more time here, but then it's going to be, like, exactly like this. But the much better thing is just to be much more organically connected at points. You know, um, you know, it just it just it feels much more uh, um, collaborative, and I think that the music and the dance both benefit from that. You know, and it's not about making some um, sort of artificial construct. It's just about making the performance uh, more um, engaging. I think. Mm -hmm. As you said, we're all we all have the same goal. We all want a great show. We all want a great experience for ourselves, for our audience, and it's about bringing people together. Your 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 sensitive your sensitivity is just so wonderful to it seems like everyone you work with and you have so many great things that you're up to and the great things on the horizon too. Is there a place that people can keep in touch with what you're working on? 
Yes, uh, my website is just www.mingluke.com, and it has a little bit of everything. So it has, it has my, my calendar. But um, I'm really excited because I think um, what the goal is over the next couple months is to actually explore this idea of having some of these videos talking about how um, music and dance can connect and um, better ways to identify. You know, like, for instance, you know, at the, the, for just a standard jeté, you know, if you're, do, um, if you're going to do time the music hit at the top of the jump, at the bottom of the jump, which would be terrible, <laughs> um, or at the very beginning of the jump, because if you're at the top of the jump, then th what ends up happening is it looks like the dancer c is coming down at that point, right? And then if you're actually at the moment of, of engagement for the dancer, when you're at the, uh, at the beginning of the jump, A, it looks like they're in the air longer, mm. right? And then B, that's exactly where they're feeling it too. You know, I mean, like you know, like like you know, you have the the muscles are engaging on the point, or if you're doing, you know, um, um, we saw it into it, you know, a jeté or something like that. You know, um, it, it feels like just like small things like that, or the idea of four days again, like the idea that you can really have a great, fantastic tempo, but if it's slightly in the wrong place, it's going to be terrible. Um, or the fact that you know, if you do single, single, double. Fuerte, you know, and then single, single, double, and at the one point it's going to look like it's completely off, but it's exactly where it's supposed to be because it's going to go right back on, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I think some of those subtleties um, we're going to be trying, uh, I'm going to be trying to include on the website. But yeah, right. it's www Perfect. That'll be wonderful for people to explore. I, I can't wait to see as, as this develops everything that you come out with. Uh, yeah, just thank you so much for your time. This has just been a wonderful conversation. I hope everyone listening feels inspired to experience more live music, experience more live dance, uh, all dancers to work together and musicians to work together. So this is, a, I think, a great, you have a great mission for all of us. So I hope we can all join you on that page. Well, you've certainly gotten me excited about it and I'm sure everyone listening too. So thank you for your time and wishing you all the best on the tour and all your future projects. And well, hopefully I, I hope I get to work with you someday in the future and get to talk to you again. This is great. And and for everyone listening, uh, that is this episode of Beyond the Bar. I'm your host, Margaret Mullen, and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>